ਬੱਚਾ ਬੱਚਾ ਆਇਆ ਬੀਬੀਆਂ ਵੀ ਆਏ ਆ ਜੋਰ ਕੇ ਵੀ ਆਏ ਆ ਦੋ ਜਵਾਨ ਵੀ ਆਏ ਸਾਰੇ ਆਏ ਆ ਬਹੁਤ ਗਿੰਦੀ ਜਾਏ ਆ ਟਰੈਕਟਰ ਪੰਜਾਬ ਜੋ ਹੈ ਪਿਛੋਂ ਹੋਰ ਆਈ ਜਾਂਦੇ ਆ ਜੀ These farmers are just one part of what's become the world's biggest protest movement. And on January 26th, for the first time, they took their message into the streets of India's capital city. Aaj thi iti khatni nali da ki aaj board ka sarani da ka kisan apna hak le ka shanti chacha hum log 4 saal lag jiyo hum ulta nahi daange mare kanun ulte le gaane In 2020, in the middle of the pandemic lockdown, small farmers and agricultural laborers in India launched a historic movement against new laws that would impoverish them while making massive profits for agribusiness corporations and the billionaire class. These laws were introduced by the right-wing Hindu fundamentalist government of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. and his reactionary Bharatiya Janata Party. The farmers' movement built a massive occupation outside the nation's capital, New Delhi, that lasted for over 11 months. The farmers were joined by India's labor movement, which carried out a historic nationwide general strike that became the single largest general strike in global history. The farmers won all their major demands against the Modi regime, showing that the power and solidarity of ordinary people can defeat the capitalist class and its representatives. But there were many groups of farmers who were unhappy at being confined to the edges of the city. They gathered where they were supposed to turn back and forced their way through the barricades. fought to keep them far away from the prime minister and the government celebrations downtown. Eh hamare kisano ke upar eh jaa jaa rahe hai eh aap through kai gas ke dode theek hai aap dekh lo ha hote hai sarkar nu sang honi chahiye vi saadi maata bhaina mere maama bhaina vargiyan ne main sadkan te bitha rakhiyan ne ਹਜੇ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਕਹਿੰਦੇ ਵੀ ਉੱਥੇ ਵਗ ਜਾਓ ਘਰਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਵਗ ਜਾਓ ਅਸੀਂ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਚਿਰ ਨਹੀਂ ਜਾਂਦੇ ਜਿੰਨਾ ਚਿਰ ਸਾਡੇ ਕਾਲੇ ਕਾਨੂੰਨ ਰੱਦ ਨਹੀਂ ਹੁੰਦੇ ਹਮਾਰੀ ਜੀਤ ਹੋ ਚੁੱਕੀ ਹੈ ਸਰਕਾਰ ਨੇ ਕੁੱਟਨੇ ਟੇਕ ਦੀ ਹੈ ਕਾਨੂੰਨ ਤਾਂ ਹਮਨੇ ਵਾਪਸ ਕੀਏ ਹੀ ਹੈ ਮਗਰ ਹਮ ਲੋਕੋ ਦਾ ਦਿਲ ਜੀਤ ਕੇ ਯਹਾਂ ਸੇ ਜਾ ਰਹੀ ਹੈ ਹਮਾਰੇ ਲਈ ਬਹੁਤ ਬੜੀ ਖੁਸ਼ੀ ਦੀ ਬਾਤ ਹੈ ਹਮ ਆਪਣੇ ਜ਼ਮੀਰੋਂ ਕੇ ਸਾਥ ਆਏ ਥੇ ਔਰ ਲੋਕੋ ਦਾ ਜ਼ਮੀਰ ਜਗਾ ਕੇ ਯਹਾਂ ਸੇ ਜਾ ਰਹੇ ਹੈ Welcome to On Strike, a production of Workers Strike Back. I'm Shama Savant. I'm here today without my co-host Biala Kom who will be back next week. On Strike has the pleasure today of bringing you a really unique episode which I know will be exciting and informative for all our viewers. I'm absolutely delighted to be able to have P Sainath who is currently visiting Seattle from India, my home country, right here in our studio with me. Sainath has just published a new book, The Last Heroes: Foot Soldiers of Indian Freedom. The book tells the stories of many of the real heroes of the Indian independence movement, the revolutionary struggle 75 years ago that ended the British Empire's colonial occupation. The freedom fighters Sainath talks about are workers, farmers, landless laborers, indigenous people, ordinary men, women and young people 
rather than the well-known leaders usually lionized. Most crucially, the stories Sainath shares in the book are about ordinary working people and oppressed community members who courageously fought British imperialism, but unlike many of the prominent leaders of the struggle, they understood that their fight was against economic exploitation and oppression as a whole, and that their fight had to continue under capitalism after the independence struggle. Sainath has been one of the most well-known journalists and political writers in India for three decades, and really I think he is one of the most important chroniclers of poverty and inequality internationally. In doing this, he has not shied away from talking about the country's growing billionaire class and how the brutal capitalist policies it favors have deeply worsened the conditions of working people and the poor in this second largest country in the world. Beginning with his landmark 1996 book, Everybody Loves a Good Drought, Sainath has investigated prolifically and in depth the enduring and worsening conditions facing the hundreds of millions of India's working class and poor people who make up the vast majority of the country's population. Everybody Loves a Good Drought was a product of Sainath having undertaken a journey of over 50,000 miles throughout rural India to analyze the unimaginable relentlessness of rural Indian poverty. This itself seemed like an act of rebellion in the context of most of the corporate media who were celebrating India's capitalism and neoliberal policies and completely refusing to report on the conditions of the majority of the population, let alone provide a critical analysis. But Sainath has not stopped at simply documenting those brutal realities. He has also provided a scathing analysis of the causes of poverty in India. He has pointed out that the increase in the misery facing the majority and the skyrocketing of the wealth of the rich in India are not some sort of coincidence, but are direct consequences of one another. And I would say they're both outcomes of the capitalist system itself. Sainath has consistently done another thing that I think on-strike viewers will find very familiar and something we virtually never see on most media, and that is the stories of ordinary people fighting back and winning victories of small farmers, agrarian laborers, and the urban working class getting organized into mass movements and uniting as they did in the recent farmer protest movement in India. As previous episodes of On Strike have illustrated, when working people and the oppressed get organized and fight back, they can win. Our conversation today will also be valuable for an American audience for other reasons. While there are obviously big differences between the situation in India and that here in the United States, Fundamentally, we can see how capitalism operates similarly in every country. The main political parties serve the interests of the ruling class and the rich, and despite their differences, put forward similar policies that fail to represent the needs of the vast majority of working and poor people. In the United States, tens of millions of ordinary and young people are angry at both the Republicans and the Democrats for selling them out. In India, we have seen decades of such policies through various corporate political parties at the helm, which have continued and been exacerbated under the current Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his reactionary Bharatiya Janata Party. Understanding India's place in world politics is also crucial in the new Cold War period that the world has entered into. The world is being increasingly divided and polarized into two blocks, one led by US imperialism and the other by Chinese and Russian imperialism. Within this conflict, Building links with the Indian capitalist class is seen as a linchpin by the U.S. ruling class in their strategy to challenge China. All of this makes today's discussion even more relevant. Welcome to On Strike, Sainath. It's so Pleasure. good to have you. Pleasure, Shama. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. 
uh, to begin with, you know, we talked about the, the book that you wrote in 1996, Everybody Loves a Good Drought. It's been now 30 years since you've, you've made observations on the situation in India. What, in your view, are the highlights of how that situation has evolved up to today? Well, you can look at it in terms of the incredible concentration of wealth that has continued since the book was written and which the book warned about. You could say, in fact, that today India is experiencing three pandemics, one of which we believe we have under control, that's COVID-19. It's very closely related to the other two pandemics, and I'll show you in a moment how. For that, The second is the startling, sensational skyrocketing of inequality. Just take COVID-19. In 1991, when India embraced neoliberalism, we did not have a single dollar billionaire. We now have 174. And those 174 account for between 20 to 24% of GDP in a population of 1.4 billion. 174 individuals account for over a fifth of GDP, which Give, giving that whole other meaning to the word gross, right? Yes. And uh, the sensational growth comes during um, the COVID pandemic. And who are the largest number of billionaires in India is fascinating. When I tell you India billionaires, you're going to say IT, you know, techies. These are going to be, the, they're actually number three. The largest number of billionaires is in the health sector. Hmm? And we created one every nine days during the first 12 months of the pandemic. It's just stunning. Yeah, so as of today, there are 60, as of the end of the pandemic, I mean, end of the lockdown in March last year, there were 16 tech billionaires, high-tech billionaires, 31 manufacturing billionaires, and 32 health sector billionaires, which, which was not the case before the pandemic. So you see the extent of wealth cornered. I mean, that's disaster capitalism. And, and, and really, yes, exactly. And really, the, they're actually explicitly and specifically profiting from the crisis. You, well, your, your audience should know that this is no accident or not a one-off. The tsunami of 2004 which battered 11 nations, shows you exactly what happens. I was absolutely up for it, expecting the same to happen. In 2004, December, as you know, there was a giant tsunami. All of you here raised collections to help people there. Of the 11 countries battered by the tsunami, five had major stock exchanges. India, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, and Thailand. At the end of the third day of the battering of the tsunami, these five stock exchanges reached record heights, surpassing any height they'd had since their founding. So somebody was making a gigantic killing out of the deaths. Same with the pandemic. Vaccine licenses, licensing, the whole works, and public money 
for yes, exactly. And yeah, and in fact, throughout the U.S., in terms of you know, obviously, you know, and many of our audience know because they live this reality, the absolute shambles that healthcare is for the tens of millions of I, Americans. I, but if you look at the profits in healthcare sector, it, it is uh, just startling. I'd like to suggest I I never use the word healthcare. There is no element of care in it. There is no care. Call it health cash. That's that, that's what's there in the health sector. I mean, imagine that we added 10 health sector billionaires in the first 12 months of the pandemic, and the five of them, and, and the cumulative wealth every day, I mean, these guys added 5 billion rupees, okay, to their, to their wealth. So, uh, it, in, in rupees, I'm talking about, yeah, that, no, that course, was yeah. every day. Yeah. But they are dollar billionaires. They are dollar billionaires. Actually, the top 1%, if you look at Credit Suisse, the multinational bank that keeps, I think, the best of the records on wealth. It's called the Credit Suisse Global Wealth Handbook and the Credit, Squ Credit Suisse um, Global Wealth Data Book. It shows us that the top 1% the top 1% of the Indian population own a greater share of total household wealth than the top 1% of the American population own in United States society. Yes, exactly. And I think talking about the billionaire class and highlighting how this is actually a phenomenon that goes across countries, the growth of billionaires or billionaires profiting during the pandemic, it's not, um, it, it, I think it, it explaining that that is an international phenomenon, that this is global capitalism is also helpful, I think, for some of the other themes that I'm hoping that we can get to later in the show, which is that actually the working class in the U.S. has so much more in common with the working class in India or working class internationally, and that the, uh, that the interests of the working class internationally are tied together. Because when you look at the the phenomenon under capitalism globally, it's similar. It's, it's, for example, in the U.S., you know, we had a, a similar phenomenon in the U.S. from what you're describing, which is that during the pandemic, billion, U.S. billionaires as a whole grew nearly $2 trillion richer. I mean, you know, I, I used to be an economics professor, and I used to have graphics to show, like, what, what, what does a trillion dollars look like? Can't you know? fit 12 zeros in your head. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to comprehend. Yeah, the commonality also starts from the common enemy. I think wherever you are, the most, the greatest uh, force you're up against is corporate power. And whether it's in India or in the United yes. States, it's corporate power that workers and farmers and other ordinary people are up against. And then remember that none of this ever gets known or properly portrayed because what you have in both countries is a largely corporatized media. Exactly. Yeah, when you have such a huge corporatized media, and India is pretty much locked into the American model in media. Yeah. And uh, except that whatever happens here happens there after a time lag of 10, 20 years. So you have a corporate media that will not let people know that at the height of the pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, Indian farmers organized the largest strike for justice, the largest movement for justice, the largest, greatest constitutional p 
peaceful democratic protest. Okay? And probably the greatest in this millennium. And they did that at the height of the pandemic. Let me give you one little comparison of another with another movement that all of us have had nothing but goodwill for. Remember Occupy Wall Street. Okay? Thousands of young people gathered very correctly, you know, came up with that slogan of you are the 1%, we are the 99%. It actually lasted, Zuccotti Park's strikers actually lasted nine weeks. And then the NYPD cleared the place. At the gates of Delhi, 100,000 farmers gathered and held out for 53 weeks. They experienced the worst Delhi winter in 40 years. They experienced the worst summer in a decade. They experienced torrential rains in the monsoon. 720 farmers died. They could not be dislodged from the little township they created on the gates at the gates of Delhi. When those farmers arrived there, they were met in winter, deep winter, with water cannon, icy cold water cannon. They were met by security forces that dug 20 feet by 10 foot trenches in the national highway with thousands of feet of barbed wire. And the, at points, it seemed there was a greater mobilization there than you might find on the line of actual control with China. This is one of the busiest highways leading to Delhi. It's been blocked for weeks. Tens of thousands of farmers from the northern states of India have marched to the capital city to protest farming reforms. They've covered at least five major highways around the city. The police met them with tear gas and water cannons, but they made it through and have now set up camp in and around Delhi. I agree with those who said in public comment that they fought with us for the $15 minimum wage and we have direct stake in the farmers in India winning their demands. The protest actions have selected multiple transportation and commuting choke points with hundreds of thousands of protesters blocking roads and squatting on railway tracks. The farmer protests are also noteworthy in the level of preparation they carried out before launching the actions. For instance, farmers interviewed at the Delhi actions say they are prepared enough to be able to sustain the action for months. The protests also have an impressive degree of coordination between the actions in metros such as Delhi and Mumbai and the actions in rural areas in the individual states. They have organized shifts with some attending the protest actions and others tending the land. Women's committees have helped with providing food every day for the thousands of activists. The protests have not been short of food even for a day. This level of organization and confidence is one of the reasons why the farmers are not intimidated despite the brutal tear gas and water cannons used against them by the police. Of course, such organizing is not the result of some clever top-down management based on ideas of business unionism. Such a level of preparation can only be achieved by first building the political conviction, solidarity, and cohesion among hundreds of thousands of oppressed people, the rank-and-file farmers, strengthening the clarity that we have to fight together against the ruling class, that it will be a long and hard fight and will involve significant sacrifice, but that it is worth doing 
precisely because that is the only way we can successfully push back against the gross injustices faced by the overwhelming majority under this bankrupt system of capitalism. It is this type of solidarity that is enabling the protesters to spend night after night in the cold winter in northern India on the back of trucks and tractors. This is the kind of organizing needed for any serious strike action by the labor movement anywhere, because big corporations and the capitalist state have all the wealth and the resources to wait for protests and strikes to grow exhausted and demoralized. I think, I think that, that really is also a good reminder of how the police are an institution of the capitalist state in every country, and their, their primary, yeah. uh, their primary um, task on behalf of the ruling class is to uh, oppre- and, re- repress movements. And, and, what they did. and I think this, what you're saying will be very familiar to people here, millions who marched in the Black Lives Matter movement and directly experienced police repression. And they did two things. The farmers were protesting against three laws they brought in first as ordinances so that they didn't have to go to parliament. Finally, they rammed it through parliament where they would have lost in the upper house by suspending eight members of parliament during the session so that they could pass it with a voice vote. Those three farm laws essentially completed the job of handing over Indian agriculture to powerful corporations. And, and you've talked about how this has been a continuation of the policy, right? It's not yeah. something that came up under, right. obviously, Modi is very openly pro-capitalist and he is also very... Uh, so was you know, the UPA. Yeah, I mean, exactly. yeah, so you're talking about previous uh, governments the, and uh, other political you, parties. You can look at it this way. The previous governments, whatever they did in terms of economic policy, pro-capitalist, pro-corporate, this government does it on steroids. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There is that great continuity in pro-capitalist, pro-corporate policies. But at the same time that they brought these laws at the height of the pandemic and the lockdown in the belief that, as one of them told me, they're all sitting at home in fear of COVID. Where will they organize? Right. And they did. And they did. And in fact, the George Floyd protest movement, which became the largest street protest also movement, happened. Used, also happened during the pandemic. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the people who marched, our experience here was that a lot of people who became politically active because of that also then heard about the farmers movement in India and were greatly inspired for all the reasons that you said. Yesterday morning, my staff and I joined hundreds of Sikh students and other young people at a protest action near the Space Needle in solidarity with the farmers in India. As an elected representative of Seattle's working people, and as someone who grew up in India and was politicized and radicalized by the understanding of how global capitalism and imperialism have led to continued impoverishment of the Indian masses and the masses in the neo-colonial world as a whole, I was proud to join the protest rally yesterday. As myself and other speakers at the rally said, the new laws are going to directly further enrich the already obscenely wealthy 
billionaires like Mukesh Ambani, who is India's richest man and is like the Jeff Bezos of India, and Gautam Adani, both of whom are among the 40 richest people in the world. Farmers are also battling stigma perpetuated by India's right-wing media and politicians, that their protests are being sponsored by foreign and domestic extremist groups. Some of the most poverty-stricken people who you would, you, would, you would think don't have their own agency, but they showed the, not only the most courage, I would say, the brilliant strategy that they were able to employ to keep everyone in the active in the movement for so long. And also, I, I, if you could touch on this, this is very important, which is the solidarity that we saw across rural workers and the, in the rank and file of the Indian labor movement and the general strike that happened in yeah, solidarity. Actually, that was phenomenal. The claim is that it was all Haryana, Punjab, two states farmers. Well, those are the states closest to the center and could mobilize better. But thousands of farmers came from other states. At one point in the People's Archive of Rural India, of which I am the founder editor, we went through the five camps. We heard more than 24 languages spoken. In, uh, from your home state of Maharashtra, 3,000 farmers went from Nashik district. Yeah, and I know the enormous distance, distance that they between covered. Yeah. Nashik, yeah, between exactly. yeah. And the Nashik ones, uh, the Maharashtra ones, set up camp at Shah Jahanpur on the Rajasthan border, the northwestern state. Um, and they were doing the cooking. Many stayed behind, 300, 400 from each state stayed behind as volunteers to do the cooking, to do the cleaning and stuff like that. Workers, even more interesting, at the same time, they, they were able, to, you see, they, they could hit the workers much harder because in the first month after lockdown, April, India lost 118 million jobs. The Center for Monitoring Indian Economy, which has since then been troubled by government or sidelined, showed that we lost 118 million jobs. Staggering. Staggering figure. Now, they immediately brought ordinances, including Mr. the Prime Minister's home state, as always the first in these, allowing the uh, factory owners and industrialists to extend working hours to 12 yes. yeah. without, without overtime, meaning that for the next four hours after eight hours, you were paid on a pro rata basis. Whatever you were paid and, and, forever. And this policy was sold by the media and by these politicians as, oh, this is just flexible. It makes it more flexible. Yeah. And, and this policy was then passed by the BJP we, in Karnataka. Yeah. And then it was attempted to pass by the DMK in Tamil Nadu, which was then... But, but then yeah. they took it back. They were more sensible about it. Well, but, but yes, but to be clear, they, they were forced to because yeah, workers were, were angry. To. And so, you know... Everybody and, was yeah. forced to, but they were more responsive to workers and protests. But the thing here is, it made us the first major country to turn back on the gold standard of eight hours a day. It's, yeah. And the it's, first it's really major shameful. country in the world to turn back on eight hours a day. And it shows you that um, 
as you were saying, the, the pro-corporate policies on steroids, you know, that, that the, the BJP government has felt emboldened enough to carry out such an attack. As you said, this is, you know, because of the victories of the labor movement internationally, the idea of eight, the eight-hour workday is such a, as you said, it's a gold standard. And to have the nerve to try to attack that, Which, it shows uh, you... A gold standard that's more than 100 years old. Exactly. And, 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 and yeah, and, and yeah. it was really one of the demands of the early labor movement, even in the U.S., actually. Which, labor leaders were literally killed. And yet, Shama... In, in their fight. And yet, nationally, workers' unions, trade unions of the railways, the banks, the various unions, time and again held so massive solidarity protests with the farmers yes, at the gates of exactly. Delhi. Exactly, that's, that's what I was trying that, to get at, which yeah. is that the rank and file of the labor movement understood that the fight of the farmers was everyone's fight. Was everyone's fight. 200 million Indian workers will go on strike on November 26th. The call for this massive countrywide action has been given by 10 central trade unions and dozens of independent federations. Simultaneously, an umbrella platform of over 300 farmers' organizations has called for a two-day protest on November 26th and 27th in coordination with the trade unions. It is expected on November 26th that workers in all major industrial sectors, including steel, coal, telecom, engineering, transport, defense production, and financial establishments like banks and insurance will down tools and hold protests. Government scheme workers, most of whom are women, will also strike work. I mean, that instinctive understanding that the farmers' demands, the most immediate demands, may not be relevant to some worker in Mumbai or uh, some other big city, but the understanding that if the farmers can win, then actually that will be a shot in the arm for the labor movement There as was a whole. also the agricultural laborers who, as you know, have major class contradictions with the farmers. Yes. Right? Yes. But they were there. All their major unions participated in that. And as they told us at Pari, that, yeah, we are aware that, you know, tomorrow our problems will continue. Yes. But if these guys go down, we go down with yes. them. Yes. I think that's another very important point you're bringing up, which is, and this is something that socialists often talk about, which is that there are movements where you may not, we as the working class may not agree with every aspect of some section of society that is fighting back on some injustice, but that our fights could be very united on the things that we agree on, and it's important to join that fight on a principled basis. In other words, the agrarian laborers making it very clear that we may not share all the interests with the small farmers or the medium farmers, but in this case, it is absolutely important for us to defeat these pro-corporate policies. An equally heartening thing was in 2018, the present phase of farmers' protests began in 2018, with simply the greatest struggle that I've seen in 30 years, which is 40,000 of some of the poorest farmers in your home state of Maharashtra, most of them too poor to own footwear, footwear marched 182 kilometers from Nashik to Mumbai in 38 degrees heat, made 40 degrees Celsius, Celsius. Yes. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Made 40 degrees because they were marching barefoot on tarmac, on tar roads in the sun. They marched 180 kilometers, came to Mumbai. They were supposed to march on, you know, the last 12 kilometers early one morning to paralyze the city with their show of strength. 
instead of which the poor things decided to march in midnight in silence because they found out that right. tens of thousands of bombay's children were sitting for their board exams the next morning they did not want to disturb the children so they raised no slogans in the last 12 kilometers they did not want to disrupt the traffic and help and paralyze the children from going to their exams so they walked in midnight after having walked 172 kilometers it won over the commercial city of mumbai the next day the response of parents students teachers was overwhelming at the historic azad maidan venue a major venue of the freedom struggle right there were people from the middle classes appearing with water packets there was one young businessman from crawford market who came with 1000 pairs of chappals of slippers he wouldn't give us his name and but he i asked him why are you doing this he said it broke my heart when i saw them walking on tv with their feet bleeding and students there were students for farmers teachers for farmers lawyers for farmers law interns at the high court were coming out and saying tell us what to say we'll file a pil public interest litigation today there were bank union employees there were railway employees you know that day we formed a platform non farmers formed a platform we saw students for farmers teachers for farmers a platform came into being called a nation for farmers nation for, because that's what we were seeing over there it was unprecedented that november we held a march the the farmers held a march on parliament there were 4000 young undergrad students from the city's leading colleges acting as volunteers coming at 4 am to receive the workers come farmers coming in from 21 states at the railways running off at 8 o'clock to write their exams between 10 and 1 and returning at 2 to help serve lunch so there was two it it was a phenomenal sight but the crackdown the hit back which brings you to the third pandemic which is the suppression of uh, repression and suppression of dissent and the criminalization of dissent that's your third linked pandemic which is linked to these first two things absolutely and and i wanted uh, want us to chat about the media and also the work of the people's archive of rural india in a in a in a little bit and because it also connects to why we are doing this on strike broadcast because we're not journalists we are activists we're socialists but just going back to the farmers movement which i think which uh, and it's important that we focus on this um, it's important to hear all the the stories you're sharing because it was such a significant development in the context of nearly 10 years of the modi regime and the bjp and this whole idea of modi magic meaning you know that the that the that this new reactionary regime which came to power in 2014 the narrative that ordinary people are offered is that this is now invincible and that yet you saw the farmers movement in the context of this incredible solidarity they got from the working class uh, across okay. india were able to they, they but let's let's keep in mind they defeated modi on that can you talk about yeah. their victory but yeah they they until the the farmers would not withdraw they could not be expelled 
as I said, 720 of them died of COVID, of hypothermia. Right. You're an 80-year-old hit by icy cold water cannon. It's not going to improve your health. We were discussing earlier how there is a continuity in policy. When the UPA was in power, the people who are now attacking me on social media, you know, anti-national will, were all quoting me favorably in the journals of the BJP and the RSS. The uh, organizer or, or uh, Tarun Bharat or Panjanya, because I was the guy breaking the stories on farmers' suicides. And if you can just explain to our American audience, when you say UP, you're talking about the United, other prominent parties, the alliance of the other prominent parties, led like the by Congress. the Congress Party, yes, yeah. and which was in power for 10 years before Mr. Modi. And many hundreds of thousands of Indian farmers have taken their lives. One, what, what neoliberalism did was to explode the costs of inputs in the name of market-based pricing. And this was, this was a, a systematic part of the neoliberal yeah, agenda. The, the official figure, which is absolutely a horrible underestimate, between 1995 and last year, is that 400,000 Indian farmers have taken their own lives. We don't anymore use the word commit suicide because it sounds like a crime. We say they took their own lives or ended their lives in despair because of what were those policies? Those policies, one, withdrew credit centrally, withdrew credit from the farmer and rerouted it towards the um, corporate agribusiness. Now, take your own home state of Maharashtra. Every year, the NABAD, the National Bank for Agriculture Rural Development, it draws up a plan and which all scheduled commercial banks follow about the distribution of agricultural credit, that is, loans in agriculture to farmers. Now, Maharashtra is a very large state, 120 million human beings. Yeah? And it's a 55% rural state. But consistently, in the NABARD's potential linked credit plan for agriculture, 53% of agricultural credit in the state of Maharashtra goes to the city of Mumbai. There is no agriculturist in Mumbai, but there's agribusiness. Yes. So that destroyed the farmers, unable to get loans, because money in their name was being given to agribusiness. The farmers returned to the traditional money lenders. When they returned to the traditional money lenders, the rest, I don't really have to tell you. The percentages, the horrendous. And that, that indebtedness was one of the biggest drivers. It's a vicious cycle. It's one of, the, yeah, yeah. one of the biggest drivers of the suicides. Now, the suicide numbers themselves are a great underestimate. We largely exclude, not totally, but largely exclude women farmers because in our society, we refuse to recognize women as farmers. In India, 60 to 65% of all work done on farms is done by women. But, but they're invisibilized. But socially, yeah. they are farmers' wives. Yes. They are actually the farmers. But they're farmers' wives or farmers' daughters or farmers' 
you know, sisters or whatever. Many of them, when their life, when they take their lives, it's counted as a general suicide in general society, not as a farmer's suicide. Women make up a third of all workers, and as a result, have been central to the movement. Harinder Bindu represents about 30,000 women in a major farmers' union. She thinks these new laws would tear families apart. Thank you so much for giving your time so generously to On Strike. And I think this is going to be a really fascinating and informative and educational conversation for all our viewers. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shama. Thank you for having me on here. On Strike has launched a membership drive for workers' strike back. Become a member now and help ensure we can continue to bring coverage of international working class struggles as we did in today's show. Go to workersstrikeback.org and click on Become a Member. On Strike is a production of Workers Strike Back, a nationwide organization fighting on working class demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, union jobs, Medicare for all, and against discrimination and oppression. Workers Strike Back is also calling for a new party for working people because neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party represents us. On Strike is a broadcast entirely for working people and funded entirely by working people. Solidarity.